3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am. The time is 7am and it is Tuesday the 6th of July. You are joined by me, Fung, Genevieve, Evie and Karagi. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Fung. Good morning. How's everyone going? Not too bad. Doing pretty well. Yeah. What's been going on since the last time we saw each other? Uh, I got my vaccine. Yay. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> How are you feeling? Um, much better now. Um, yeah, as soon as they opened up the vaccines for everyone, whether Scott Morrison did it accidentally or not, who can say, um, <laughs> but took advantage of it. There's a clinic in Brunswick that is basically got, like, non-stop vaccines going, and it was just full of people under 40, like me, ready to go. Of course. Um, so, yeah, got that. Um, me and my partner took a cute date to the vaccination clinic and got our first shot of the AstraZeneca vaccine and felt a bit crap <laughs> for yeah. a few days. But, yeah, just very happy that it's finally happening for all of us. Yeah, totally. Um, well, just wanted to remind all our listeners that this week is uh, NADOC week and at 3CR um, we're... We've got our annual Beyond the Bars uh, broadcast, uh, which is a unique series of live prison radio broadcasts that give voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. The broadcasts are represented by 3CR's First Nation broadcasts, um, uh, broadcasters. Um, it began in 2002, which is a long time yeah. ago now, uh, and each year it features songs, stories, um, opinions and poems from the men and women and other people inside uh, while also connecting them with culture and community. So tune in to 3CR today from 11am um, and every other day this week. Yeah, and if, you have, if you've never listened to Beyond the Bars, like 100%, I'd even go back and listen to some of the previous years that have happened. Um, they're all up on the 3CR website, but it's just an incredible show. Um, extremely well produced and um, really important, I think, um, in terms of connecting uh, First Nations people that are inside prisons with um, community outside, which is really important. Yeah, it's it's really important for people to read and listen and understand these stories because it helps us understand uh, what people go through in prison as a whole as well. Um, and what we can do to help people when they when, once they leave prison. Definitely. Mm, I think I also wanted to mention, um, since it is NADOC week as well, um, that uh, just in terms of the history of NADOC week, it did start off as um, a protest. Like um, all good days. All good weeks. days. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't necessarily um, started off as a celebration that we see it today. But it did start off as a protest um, that was organised by First Nations people. Um, so I feel like 
if you, uh, people just keep that in mind in terms of the origins of NATO Week because it is important um, in terms of centering the conversation still on First Nations people and uh, amplifying their voices. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, speaking of NADOC Week and, and uplifting um, voices of First Nations people, um, we've got a very exciting guest on today's show. Uh, Genevieve, did you want to tell us more about it? Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, everyone here is really excited to talk to uh, Dr. Chelsea Wadiger. Um, who is a Manjala, Manjali, sorry, and South Sea Islander woman, um, who, I mean, if you've ever read any of Chelsea's work, it's just incredible. Um, her research is, um, extremely important and we're ex- really excited to have her on to talk about, uh, specifically, uh, coercive control and carceral feminism. She wrote an incredible article for the conversation. It would be a few weeks ago now, um, that, I mean, in terms of, uh, centering the conversation, um, in a First Nations, uh, perspective and I think it just really hits the mark, um, with what's been left out at this point. So very excited. We'll be chatting to her um, at around 20 to 8. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to uh, Dr. Letitia Anderson last week, who is a lecturer in humanities um, at Southern Cross University. Uh, she co-wrote an article as well about critical race theory, um, specifically uh, to... Uh, discuss recent events, I guess, that happened in the Senate in terms of the national uh, curriculum. Uh, A few senators, um, I guess, had a lot of critique about introducing elements of critical race theory into the national curriculum. Yeah, Pauline Hanson wanted to pass a motion (laughs) to to ban it without um, a lot of people, including herself, necessarily understanding what critical race theory was. Yeah, exactly. And I think... um, Letitia does an incredible job at kind of clarifying uh, exactly what critical race theory is, exactly where it's uh, derived from, and I guess why these politicians used it in this context, kind of, you know, to as a bit of a trigger word. And yeah, she describes it really well. So uh, we'll be playing that uh, very shortly. And later on in the show, uh, at around 8am, I'll be speaking with Hannah Yared, um, who is a psychologist and PhD candidate at Monash University. Um, and her PhD research uh, focuses on race and racism in Australian schools. So I think that conversation will um, tie in really nicely with um, uh, your discussion with Dr. Letitia Anderson Genevieve. Okay, well, we will be right back uh, with the news headlines after this. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002 and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash 
beyond the bar. Thoughts within, visions I see, daring to dream my destiny. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, I forgot to mention the weather before. I checked yesterday <laughs> and it said today would be mostly cloudy with a max of 13 degrees, but I haven't checked um, this morning. So, yeah, it has been a bit chilly lately. Yeah, yeah. still winter, but hopefully turning the corner. I think so. We've had some really nice days, so, mm. yeah. Yeah, cold is one thing, but at least it's not like, you know, just freezing sleet and rain and everything. Exactly. Yeah. That's nice. We did mention earlier that uh, it is NAIDOC week. Uh, I feel it's important that we mention that the theme for this year's NAIDOC week is heal country. And what that means is that country is inherent to our identity. Um, It sustains our life in every aspect, spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially and culturally. And it's more than a place. So when we talk about country... um, People refer to it in the same way as they would as a person um, and in their cultural history, they talk about country. Um, so the NAIDOC website says that healing country means embracing First Nations cultural knowledge and understanding of country as part of Australia's national heritage, that the culture and values of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders are respected equally and to the cultures and values of all Australians, and that right to protect country and culture is fundamental There's so much more work to do to heal country. It's not just about saying sorry. It's not just about everything else that we've done to acknowledge um, the history of First Nations people. Um, It must be a fair and equitable resolution, and it means finally resolving the outstanding injustices which impact the lives of our people. So NAIDOC Week has happened in light of a lot of increasing um, incidents of discussing how um, Aboriginal people have been treated in custody and deaths in custody. Um, There have been um, inquests happening even over just the last month. Um, So it's really important to take all this in context um, when we talk about Hill Country. It's not just, you know, just a, a celebration. It is a really meaningful event. Definitely. It's not just a marketing uh, <laughs> yeah, and the the origins of protesting Australia Day are found in, in the origins of NAIDOC Week. Um, as you mentioned, Genevieve, it started as a protest. Um, in 1938, um, protesters marched through the streets of Sydney, followed by a congress attended over a 1,000 people, and it was like one of the biggest um, civil gatherings, civil rights gatherings in the world at that time, in 1938, protesting Australia Day and understanding the history of mourning that Aboriginal people have over Australia Day. And it's really important to remember these things when we think about heel country. Definitely. And I think going back to what um, you were both saying earlier, I think it's really important to support um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders during NAIDOT Week, but also all the time, um, without actually centering ourselves as non-Indigenous mm-hmm. people. Um, and and knowing to take a step back, I feel like sometimes mm. that can be a challenge. So yeah, just remembering to uplift um, the voices and experiences of those who um, are experts and have lived experience, and 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 that's yeah, 
First mm. Nations people yeah, in this and country. I just wanted to add, as a migrant to this country, um, just you know, for everyone else who's a migrant, it's really important to know where you are and to know the history of this country and um, use your platform as a migrant to also amplify Indigenous voices. Yeah, mm. the, the the experience, like the migrant experience, is can be one thing, but it is not the same as the experience that First Nations people no, it experience. can never be the same. And, we, like, migrants need to be really mindful and aware of that, I think, um, yeah. living in Australia. Mm. When we talk about intersectional politics and feminism, it's really important to realise that it's not um, a stepladder. It, no. it, it, you have to consider uh, that not all experiences are the same and um, a situation where... Um, an Indigenous or a First Nations person is talking about something that directly affects them, our experiences are not going to be the same. No, mm. and it's our job to listen. Yeah, not. I think something that we'll touch on uh, throughout this show as well, it's just not the same solution as well. I mm. think there's a tendency to glaze over these solutions with kind of one brush stroke. Uh, one thing will fix everything, but um, no, it's very different and needs very different solutions. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I find it really helpful to think about, you know, the fact that we are on stolen land. And yep. I think once you understand that, then, yeah, I think you are able to support and show up and be an ally in a way that does not centre your own experience. Exactly. Mm. Absolutely. One really great thing that I saw for NAIDOC Week this week is that Channel 10 for their news broadcast put Aboriginal place names, even just on the weather chart, mm. even just something, it seems small as that. And, yes, it is small for Channel 10 to do that, mm. but it's such a unique way of identifying to people this is the land that we're on. And it seems like it's, it's such an easy thing to learn the true name of where we live. We live in Nam. Mm. Um, and I think it's really, like, that's a really great start to sort of educating people about um, their place names and how to correctly call um, the place in which they live. Um, Australia Post is also, yeah, have also that. started doing that yeah. too. Yeah, you can now um, address letters and um, put um, the place name of where you live um, and it will be directed there, which I think, again, is it, it seems small, but it's very meaningful. Mm. Um, Kanagi, did you want to talk about what uh, has been happening in Footscray? I absolutely do, yeah. yes. Um, so I, I live in Footscray. I've lived there for years. Um, and I think, you know, Footscray doesn't have the best reputation in Melbourne, which is, um, I, I, living there, it's... I don't really understand how that's still a thing. Mm. But um, just this weekend, the police were sort of given the extra powers, as they often get given, to stop and frisk and search random people in the street, stop cars, search the cars, um, to look for weapons in Footscray. And I walked around, and there were just... So many cops everywhere, on horses and cars. There were, like, three cars stopping, three police cars stopping one car and frisking one man. Um, and I just find, you know, that kind of police presence wildly unnecessary in a suburb that has such a huge migrant community, so diverse. There's so many different waves of migration that have happened to Footscray. Um and a lot of those people have trauma from their home countries of the police and mm. being stopped and being searched, and that's why they're here. 
there's kind of no regard for any of that. And, you know, there was a lot of backlash, of course. Um, a lot of people were out there with pamphlets, um, telling people their rights. Um, people were taking videos. There was a lot of sort of community support, which was nice. Mm. Um, but it's just been uh, reported in the Star Weekly that out of 255 people searched, only one man had weapons, quote-unquote, which happened to be three kitchen knives, um, which is, yeah, really mm. telling of how unnecessary the whole thing was. Yeah, I actually, <clears throat> I wasn't in Footscray that day. I kind of came back a couple of days later. Sorry, I've just moved from Footscray. <laughs> so, um, but even, it would have been a Friday, and I remember on my street there was 10 police officers, like, walking down the street on the road. Mm. And, like, completely bizarre, yeah. like, so many of them never seen them in that area before, and it was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where did this come from? Was there something that, I mean, not that anything has to happen to spark this? Yeah, well, I don't think anything did, mm. to my knowledge. I think it was just, yeah, it's a low socioeconomic suburb. There's a lot of migrant communities, I think, in my personal opinion. It was kind of in a place where they could get away with doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, like what you were saying before, Kenny, it's so important that there are people out there explaining to people in the community that they do have rights and what they can do yeah. when they're, um, you know, when the police approach them. Because I feel like so many people wouldn't know what to do. No. Or you'd just be terrified. Yeah. Like that sounds terrifying. Well, exactly. And, and people were stopped and asked and they did say you know um this is a bit triggering from mm -hmm. from where i'm from um and you know a local um socialist counselor basically said that this could lead to racialized policing in the long run you know it's like baby steps it's like one minute this is happening mm -hmm. and then the next minute it's like happening more often and yeah it shouldn't shouldn't be happening at all yeah um yeah has there been any other response from the local government or anyone yeah, from the police? I don't know about the police, but mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of um, the local sort of uh, Maribyrnong Victorian socialists are really campaigning for this to not happen again mm. and for it to be safer for people in the streets. Yeah. They're calling it like a draconian attack on civil rights, mm. which, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's already happening. Yeah. Like, it's happening every day. Um and, and targeting, I think, you know, we know that police do tend to target First Nations, um, you know, African communities. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so. It was Footscray and Dandenong, so yeah. that, oh, there was no, no surprise Yeah, there. completely yeah, targeted. targeted. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and I don't, like, I haven't read about it in the news or anything. No. Um, I mean, a lot of what I saw was what was posted in, like, from community members like yourself, yeah. Carnegie, on social media in order to spread awareness and, and yeah, warn people that this is happening. So I guess watch this space and we'll, we'll be, um, yeah, watching very closely um, to see what happens next. Um, okay, well, we'll be back right after this. Uh-huh. 
independent and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Um, up next, we're going to play uh, a track called We Sing Until Sunrise by R&B and electropop duo The Marindas. They are Candice Loray of Jawin and Thursday Islander Heritage and Nyunga Baladong Wajuk woman Crystal Kicket. The track comes from their 2020 album of the same name. Um, the Marindas are set to release new music uh, later in the year and we can't wait.
So that was We Sing Until Sunrise by the Marindas. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday breakfast at 7.25 a.m. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, show you not show you you're on the radio um <laughs> i had a great conversation uh, with letitia anderson last week uh letitia is a lecturer in humanities at southern cross university and specializes in research on race cultural and social inclusion in australian society and on culturally inclusive and community engaged education and training Letitia has previously worked as an academic at the University of Sydney, teaching cultural competence and peace and conflict studies, and prior to commencing her academic career, worked in the Indigenous Rights and Reconciliation Movement. Letitia is on the show uh, to discuss critical race theory, uh, and we also discussed uh, recent events in federal parliament where the Senate... Uh, has voted to reject critical race theory from the national curriculum. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. No worries at all. Such a pleasure. Um, I wanted to start off, uh, you know, just because I feel like critical race theory is a term being thrown around a lot lately, especially considering the Black Lives Matter movement last year and um, how it gained a lot of momentum. Um, however, I feel it doesn't get as much focus here in Australia um, and also even though the term has become used quite a lot in the mainstream media, social media and political spheres, I feel like many people still don't necessarily know exactly what it means or what it's trying to explain. So if you could start off, uh, start us off with a bit of context, what is critical race theory? Thanks, I think you're right that there are lots of different understandings of what it means and from an academic perspective, I would define critical race theory or CRT as an academic theory or framework of theories developed primarily by black scholars, mostly who were originally um, lawyers and working in legal studies, and then further developed by activists to highlight the systemic and institutional nature of racism. So within critical race theory, this is a really strong emphasis that racism is viewed as more than just individual prejudices. Instead, it's considered to include a wide range of social practices deeply embedded in policies, laws and institutions. And sometimes the focus of theorists will be on whether there's a deliberate embedding of those type of discriminatory practices in order to maintain um, racial disparities in different kind of areas of life or whether it's an unwitting or an unconscious um, bias that's been embedded within systems. So interpretations of critical race theory are diverse because it's still a growing body of scholarship. But some of its general principles are an acceptance of the social construction of race, an emphasis on the need to understand and combat systemic racism, and an appreciation of the way that different institutional practices and laws impact differently upon people due to the complexity of, the, of our identities. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good um, point in terms of, you know, it's not just one thing. It's uh, evolving. It's um, a theory that can be um, flexible and like applied to different areas. Um, just considering it's, I guess, growing usability in the mainstream sphere, um, you know, it's been both used in a constructive sense um, and it's also, I guess, been tainted, uh, the word, uh in a negative sense for, I guess, more political advantage. But why do you think it's important to have a theory like this? And I guess why have some people and politicians tried to weaponize it? Thank you. I think that's a few really important points there to unpack a bit more. So I guess the first point I would emphasize is that CRT is not the only academic theory of race and racism. And it's not even the only theory that includes an emphasis on the general principles I mentioned above. But it is really important for a few reasons. One is the groundbreaking work that was done by CRT legal scholars who demonstrated how and why racial disparities persisted in the United States. They did so through analysing these disparities in the legal and criminal justice system, as well as how education and employment opportunities, or the lack thereof, impacted generational wealth accumulation. So that body of research was really, really significant, especially in the US, and it has inspired researchers and activists in other places as well. And that kind of leads me into the second reason why CRT is so important. So it has been incredibly successful as an academic theory that starts off being very complex. And if you read some of the kind of original articles that were produced by CRT legal scholars, they're not very easy to sort of um, read and understand. But the general principles and the outcomes of the research that they did were really successful in moving out from the purely academic sphere to influence activists and educators, especially in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's really important to emphasise as well that the fact that this was a um, theoretical framework and then a movement that was driven by black scholarship is really important and quite unique among um, large kind of scale academic frameworks that then move on to have wider impact. So that said, I think we can see a few different things there about why it's important and why there's been a backlash against it. So I think um, in when that theory is adopted and moved into activist context, sometimes it starts to take on a life of its own. So that may be where mischaracterizations of the theory or really broad definitions of what CRTR start to sort of emerge from. The other is that there's a very strong um, need in the US and in other countries where the Black Lives Matter has, movement has had a lot of influence, such as in Australia, to push back against the calls for racial justice. So I think the fact that it's linked to these concrete kind of demands for justice and the fact that it's driven by black scholarship and black leadership kind of combine to drive a lot of the resistance towards the theory. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, you included in your article about uh, Trump especially kind of using uh, CRT as, like, dividing people. And I think that's kind of a common um, line with people that weaponize uh, CRT, you know, it's, you know, dividing people. It's not bringing them together, which I think is a common misconception. Yeah, I would agree totally there. So that's the general statement that 
often made about CRT, but often about any moves to try and discuss race in a um, critical and constructive way, the way that it operates within our society. So often there's this kind of claim, which is often based on an idea of um, the need to be colorblind, to pretend that race doesn't have an impact on the way that any of us move through the world, um, to try and say, well, if we talk about race, if we draw attention to that in itself is divisive. But I think what the work of CRT scholars as well as other scholars in different um, uh, academic fields has demonstrated is that where societies are already divided, we can't deny the racial disparities that are documented in so many different areas of life. So looking for ways to then find how we can move past that is more productive, I think, in the long run than trying to pretend that those divisions aren't actually there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so bringing it back to Australia and especially what's happened recently, so at the end of April, a draft of the proposed revised national cur- curriculum was released. Could you please explain exactly what the national curriculum entailed in terms of um, its relation to critical race theory and exactly what uh, were would have been the benefits of this? So I think the first thing to point out is that critical race theory is not part of current national curriculum or the proposed revised national curriculum. So when we start to see this sort of anxiety expressed in the media and social media and among conservative think tanks about CRT in the curriculum, it's not explicitly in the curriculum. And even if it has um, more scope, for example, in the new curriculum to talk about concepts such as social construction of race or systemic racism, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's CRT. That can come from different academic traditions as well. That's not to say that CRT perspectives aren't going to be useful to unpack some of those issues, um, but I think it's just really important to point out that it's not actually in the Australian curriculum um, as it is. So we wouldn't normally be expecting teachers at primary school or early high school, for example, to be teaching an academic theory and setting readings um, from academic journals. There might be opportunities um, at a senior level for educators to look at some of these theoretical concepts and even to talk about the way that they move into social movements. Um, but it's not something that the Australian curriculum does or is planning to integrate and make all teachers and students be studying. So I think one of the things that has seemed to provoke a bit of anxiety about the new curriculum is that there's a different type of focus on teaching about Indigenous experiences, especially of colonialism. So I feel like then when there's this jump from a resistance to increasing or changing the way that Indigenous experience of um, colonisation and living within the Australian nation um, brought into the curriculum, that then just gets extended out into this generalised sort of anxiety about CRT. And I think that that is more of a debate that's been imported from the US than necessarily something that was seen of concern in the Australian context. For sure. I think that's a Good point. So CRT is kind of being used in a way to um, make the new curriculum or this proposed curriculum to introduce more First Nations um, 
uh, education, it's kind of being used in a way to uh, make it seem more negative or like make it seem more, I guess, as you said, transplanting the debate happening in the US to Australia. Um, and I think this leads on to my next question of, you know, this is evidently got knocked back in the Senate. And um, I wanted to ask, why did this happen? Yes, I think that's another thing to sort of be really clear about. So the curriculum itself was not backed in was not knocked back in the Senate. So the Senate doesn't have the ability to decide what is or isn't in the national curriculum. So that's developed by an independent body, ACARA, who work with educational specialists and other specialists and take years in a very um, long consultative process to work on the curriculum. So what the Senate um, voted on was a statement to reject CRT from the curriculum that doesn't really connect up with the process of the way that the curriculum is developed in Australia. So I think when we see a motion like that being brought before the Senate and then um, certain members of the Senate, predominantly from parties like Pauline Hanson's party and the um, Liberal National Coalition supporting that motion, it's not really with an intention to directly influence what goes in or out of the curriculum because they'll all be aware that that's not actually part of their remit. Um, but it's more of a media stunt to sort of generate anxiety and confusion about what really goes on and what really is happening. Also, I guess, what is the potential impact of this, I guess, media stunt almost, especially for here in Australia and uh, what does it represent, I guess, in the broader context of talking about race in schools? I think the short-term potential is that it creates debate, and some of that could be positive. For example, I think the, the idea that there are constructive conversations happening about CRT all around the country could be a very positive thing in the long run. I think that there's some risk if the actors who have been pushing this movement to try and import this debate from the US um, are successful in creating a moral panic about what's being taught in schools and what kind of changes are afoot with the new national curriculum, then that could have a bit of a chilling impact, uh, potentially on debate nationally, but also I think in the decisions that individual schools make about the way that they implement the curriculum. Because although ACARA develops through these consultative processes the curriculum, schools have a lot of um, leeway in some circumstances in the way that they decide to focus on different parts of the curriculum or implement it. And if they start to be um, given the sense that there'll be strong pushback from the public or from parents, if they are teaching about race and racism in ways that would be described as CRT, um, whether it is or isn't influenced by that theoretical framework, I think that could lead to schools becoming a bit more cautious about the way that they um, um, interact with and implement that new curriculum. And I think this is a time in Australia where we need uh, a lot of courage in 
tackling these very difficult issues from our historical past and their legacies, as well as looking at what it means to be an increasingly diverse society with large proportions of, of young people in our schools already coming from culturally diverse backgrounds, already experiencing um, racism and experience of discrimination. So this is something we need to be tackling, and that can be done with very young children in age-appropriate ways. Um, but it's not something that we want to be discouraging schools from taking on and, and encouraging them to be overly cautious in um, or averse to even raising the, the topic of race at all, because we've sort of talked about that's that's a really counterproductive way to pretend that it doesn't exist or to minimise any discussions. If we build our um, tolerance and our um, resilience in talking about difficult issues like this, it becomes more easy to then collaborate together and work on change. For sure. I think that's a really good point to end on as well in terms of, you know, these sorts of discussions open up um, a a discussion on a topic that has previously been kind of uncharted and especially here in Australia. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Letitia. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to talk about these topics in a bit more of an extended format. That was uh, Letitia Anderson talking about critical race theory. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7.43am. We've got a very, very special guest on the line, uh, Dr Chelsea Wadigo, who is an associate professor and a Manjali and South Sea Islander woman uh, who has been working in Indigenous health, uh, who used to work as a health worker and now a researcher. Chelsea's work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. She is a prolific writer and public intellectual, having written for Indigenous X, NITV, The Guardian and The Conversation. She is also a founding board member of the Anala Wangara, an Indigenous Community Development Association within her community, a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, and was one of the half of the Wild Black Women radio podcast show, which we actually loved on Tuesday Breakfast. We always used to play it. <laughs> um, and uh, she has a forthcoming book, Another Day in the Colony, uh, which will be published by University of Queensland Press. Chelsea is on the show to talk to us about carceral feminism and the implications of criminalising coercive control for Indigenous women. Thank you so much for joining us, Chelsea. We are huge fans. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh, no worries at all. Um, here at 3CR, we have been following the debate on whether or not coercive control should be criminalised quite closely, um, and, you know, especially the implications of criminalisation on Indigenous communities. 
your article in the conversation defines coercive control as a systematic domestic violence that operates through a matrix of subtle practices, including surveillance, gaslighting, financial control and fear of potential violence. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the main issues with criminalising coercive control for Indigenous women and communities? Sure. Look, I should acknowledge that um, article in the conversation is co-authored with my colleagues, Dr. Alyssa McCown, Dr. David Singh and Dr. Elizabeth Strakosh. Um, and it was part of some work that we did in partnership with Sisters Inside um, and Debbie Kilroy, um, who had concerns about the conversations about um, the criminalisation of coercive control based on the evidence. Um, uh, the evidence that relates to the relationship that Blackfellas have the state um, with the legal system at present and with every single law that gets introduced, we know that Blackfellas suffered the brutality of those laws, even laws that are designed to protect the general public. They're visited upon Blackfellas in the most brutal way. Um, one example is when uh, changes to getting a driver's licence in Queensland, the kind of anti-tuning legislation, which was meant to protect the public from young people driving cars dangerously. And what it was introduced was logbooks and all of these extra um, things in order to be able to get your licence, um, which, you know, it has a public good, one would assume. But then if we look at the traffic offences for blackfellas in the state of Queensland and the implications of those laws, it was blackfellas that were most affected by those laws. We weren't protected, we were brutalised by them. Um, and we see that with the public nuisance, introduction of the public nuisance law in the state of Queensland, it was less than a year before a black man died in a prison cell based on that legislation. Um, what's made us particularly wild is Jeff Hill, the investigative journalist who did that docu-series, used the story of Tamika Mullaly and her baby Charlie as a case for bringing in this legislation, yet Tamika's story doesn't tell us about how the state protects black women in domestic violence relationship it is an example of how black girls get brutalised by the state. Um, Baker Charlie died because of the violence of the police in that encounter. So it's like, it makes me, like I'm really sick of having this conversation explaining the violence of criminalisation upon black people. Like we actually know this, the evidence is there, yet for the last few months, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have had to continue to bring the evidence to the conversation, only to be deemed abusive and aggressive um, for bringing the evidence base. I mean, it's, it's just been really exhausting um, bearing our bruises only to be deemed the perpetrators. And Nayuka Gore made a really important point um, just last week, is that for the black women in this place, the only role we have assigned us is either victim or perpetrator. We can't be anything beyond that. And so that tells us about the violence itself of the coercive control conversation being had right now amongst castle feminists. It's really interesting to me that whenever a particular law or um, a sort of a new legislation is proposed which may radically change the way in which, you know, people are criminalised, 
um, there's always a lack of understanding about the uh, the knock-on effects to First Nations people. And as you mentioned, it's it's almost always them that are first affected um, because the the law is usually then manipulated in such a way as to um, specifically target these people. Uh, we see it in, even in public um, drunkenness laws in Victoria, um, which had to be abolished. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yes, and, uh, it, and because a black woman died. Yes, you know? absolutely. But from the brutality that blackfellas experienced, now we shouldn't have to wait for blackfellas to die for it to change. What's interesting with public nuisance laws here in Queensland is a black man died within six months of that legislation being introduced, which was targeted at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in North Queensland. Like he was in the area in which, when they were talking about this legislation, were targeting. And they put the story of Morinji in a little text box to the side, and it doesn't change anything in their review of that legislation. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it should be a default to consider the harms in which legislation does first. Well, I would say, you know, black folks, we're like the, the, you know, the canary in the coal mine. We will, like, if, if, it's, if, it, if it's good for black folks, it's good for everyone. Uh, it's not about whether we're a subset of a population group. Um, and what gets me with this conversation, when, when black fellows here talking about alternatives to criminalising castle, uh, criminalising coercive control, or to, you know, to, to extend our imagining, um, everyone is a beneficiary of that labour, of that change. Yet it's telling that in the colonial state, any time that anything's introduced, we, we, we experience the violence of it. I mean, it's no coincidence. And here in the state of Queensland, we've come off the back of the youth justice reform which the Queensland Police uh, Union themselves said was aimed at Indigenous kids, our kids. And within a week, that legislation was introduced. We also had last year um, a conversation of, uh, around increasing penalties against assaults against uh, first responders. Now, I was commissioned to do some work for the Queensland Sentencing Advisory Council along with my colleague, Dr David Singh and Helen McKaidlick. And, you know, what's interesting is that they didn't... Um, it was, a, it was an afterthought for them to try and understand why Indigenous people are overrepresented on assaults against first responders. And we provided the evidence as to why, which included first responders lying about the exchange with Indigenous peoples, first responders concocting stories of, of black violence while exercising violence upon black fellows. And, you know... Um, it was interesting to me the fight we had to have that story told, even though it was from an evidence base. So this is like this is not just that question of control. Every piece of legislation gets introduced that involves incarcerating people. Um, we having to tell the same story, going, "Hey, your blackfellas are being brutalised. We are not beneficiaries of the supposed public good of any of this legislation, and it's no coincidence. I mean, it's it's, it's not a matter of it's, it isn't a coincidence." Colonizers know what they're doing here. Yeah, you're exactly right. And in addition to that, there's also uh, the fact that when Indigenous women um, do call the police for um, domestic violence or family violence, they're often named the perpetrator. Um, and it's an interesting point you made about um, the documentary where Tamika's story was actually uh, told and somehow um, it was still argued that coercive control was beneficial, um, even though the documentary yeah. kind of showed that it, it wouldn't be for Indigenous women. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about carceral feminism and its limitations um, when understanding coercive control? It's violent. It's just violent. And, and you know, like, um, 
I'm, I'm, I know a lot of um, blackfellas are exhausted by this debate. And it's, you know, like, the people that are lecturing up on coercive control are actually exercising it right now in these conversations. The castle feminists, I mean, they know coercive control because they're doing it right now. Yeah. Um, the fact that Jess Hill just this week does this Twitter thread about, the, you know, the Indigenous peoples who have to say about um, coercive control, like, the, you know, the opposing argument after she branded us, you know, as, as she summarised the critique of coercive control as divided opinion amongst Indigenous women, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that is violent. That is, that is certainly racialised. Um, I, I just don't understand how you can, you can look at the work of Amanda Porter, Megan Davis, Hannah McGlade, myself, and go, oh, that's just divided opinion. I mean, we have references for our work. Um, Megan Davis's work around the family as cultural inquiry into um, New South Wales Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. I mean, people have done the work here. Um, we brought the evidence base. Yet, for some reason, these carceral feminists, for who knows what reason, refuse to recognise the evidence before them. Because this is not opinion, this is evidence. I mean, we just had the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal deaths in custody, where we have more blackfellas dying in custody. Yet these fellas want to send more blackfellas there? And this, what we know is it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't treat it or prevent it. It just brutalises people. I don't understand. Like, there's something really sick about that mentality. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just kind of brings to light the underlying racism that informs all of these so-called debates where um, there's just one side really being kind of heard and the others with exactly as you said huge evidence bases are being ignored and I cannot imagine how exhausting that must be for Indigenous and what, women what, I mean, yesterday, yesterday people have these Twitter debates over it and at the same time um, I'm sitting with a, a family who's grieving trying to get their brother out of jail to mm-hmm. attend their father's funeral having been denied um, leave on compassionate grounds for the last few weeks while his father was still alive to see him before he died. You know, so every day, this is, this is not just about Twitter debate and fighting with academics or journalists over who's got the best take. Every day, black fellows are dealing with the brutality of the state, appealing to it for some compassion. Mm. So yeah. that um, a, a son can sit, go to his dad's funeral, for God's sake. And we're still waiting on, we're still waiting for the Queensland government to release Kane to approve him to attend his dad's funeral this week. You know, like, we shouldn't have to do this work. Yeah, it's forcing black women um, to constantly repeat themselves, to constantly have to justify um, their opinions and their existence. And uh, that in itself is such an exhausting thing. It's like like, it's consciously wanting to wear them out from having to constantly bring up the same thing over and over again. Absolutely. And so it's the carceral feminists, but it's also the criminologists. You know, mm. the, early this year, the criminologists were at the Queensland Police Service Union conference. Um, and a week later, we get the youth justice reform passed. We've got criminologists blocking other black uh, academics who are participating in public debates around this issue. These are our kids. These are our brothers. These are, these are our family members. Like, where do these people think, who do they, that, who do they think these people belong to when they send them off to prison? Who do you think picks up the toll of that when they come out? Like, we, we're bearing the, the, the brunt of the brutality of, 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 of carceral um, supposed solutions, um, but we, we carry that every day. 
And the, the way, the ease in which blackfellas find themselves in prison cells is appalling. I've been in a watch house twice in my life. Um, I've got current action against the Queensland Police Service for being locked up in the Brisbane City Watch House and assaulted in custody. But we have skin in the game. This is real. We're not just talking about people out there. This is affecting us. Yeah, I think um, that's yet, part yet, of... To speak of... To speak of bruises on our body, somehow we're perpetrators. Like, that's... It's just been so infuriating, you know? Like, um, what more evidence do they need? Yeah, I think that's part of what it is for carceral feminists. For them, it is a theory as opposed to the reality. Um, and it's something that you've noted before that um, I uh, really respect is that uh, Indigenous women don't merely want to be adopted into these agendas um, in the same way as white women do, but but you ask for a reimagining of the entire system. And that's what I think about when we talk about prison abolition. Um, yep. uh, so from what you described, carceral feminism reduces the ability for people to think radically. Like you think about, like, they, they think about well, having to go humanely, into the system. Uh, not even radically, but humanely. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's what blackfellas offer. We don't just offer a testimony about the brutality of the violence we experience. Um, we offer a way of being in the world that is not so violent, you know, that doesn't have to be abusive. And that's the irony here, is that we are the ones cast as perpetrators, yet it is us that offer um, ways forward in doing things better, more humanely, more respectfully, more caring. But it's us that are framed as violent. I mean, this is like... Um, that's the thing that really gets me. I don't understand um, how people don't don't see the, the the contradiction in all of this, the glaring contradiction that what blackfellas are calling for. Um, you know, we use the um, reference the work of uh, Ruby Wharton when you know this was at a protest when when she spoke and, and about the brutality that blackfellas experience. You know, um, and she was um, talking about walking in love. You know, abolition is, is, is not about revenge. It's not about violence. And, and she herself said she's not calling for incarceration of police who are dying of the same system blackfellas are. Like, this is about love and justice and care. What does it mean to really care in this place for all people? Yet there's no room to have that conversation amongst carceral feminists. That says something about the violence of those people. Yeah, well, it's almost as if uh, to sort of... Take you, like reimagine this. Um, it would sh- shift the power dynamic pretty yeah. significantly, <laughs> and um, maybe a lot of casual feminists are not interested in that. Well, you have to then accept that maybe like black fellas might know some stuff that maybe we aren't <laughs> the inferior race after all, you know. And some people really—I mean, as a black fellow working in the academy, um, I, I deal with that every day. This idea that we couldn't possibly know anything. I mean, the recent debacle around that article, um, my work's all but erased um, by people who claim to know what it is, you know? And, like, it's, it's, we, we experience this violence every day, as though we can't possibly know, as though our intellectual work is a matter of opinion and, therefore, not legit scholarship. Um, like, this is a thing. It's not just the castle feminists. The race scholars are doing it, too. Um, one thing we spoke about earlier on the show and something I, I know that you're probably intimately acquainted with in the discussion this week is that even as immigrants ourselves, it's not our place to put our experiences ahead of um, Indigenous people in the conversation about carceral feminism and coercive control. Um, and especially like, you know, in 
um, say like even just assuming that our experiences are at all alike, we live on stolen land. Um, and it's quite frustrating sometimes to see um, other feminists who uh, who basically defend their sort of point of view or their defence of carceral feminists uh, by saying, well, I am a migrant, so I understand uh, a lot of issues about oppression and, like, um, and the things that affect me. Um, I would certainly not be keen to speak ahead of um, people like yourself who understand the unique issues that face that. Like, I understand that, like, the in- the intersection doesn't mean that our experiences are parallel. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's been exhausting. And I've had to, you know, part of the conversation has been people then throwing up their trauma and their experience of racial violence to legitimise their place in this conversation. Um, you know, um, there, there are those that are suggesting their experience is comparable or commercialable with experiences of, of Aboriginal women in this place. And, um, I mean, that, that's deeply offensive. And the, the framing of us as just another, another marginalised group. Um, and this is, this, is, this is the problem of diversity and equity versus sovereignty, um, is that if you see us as a group in need and not as a sovereign people, then, of course, you would see yourself as commercialable and comparable. And that's why equity and diversity discourse works for migrants. Um, because it erases raises our sovereignty in their imagining, um, and and that's that's violent and infuriating for black scholars. Um, but the other thing is, is that it's in our sovereignty that we imagine a different way of being, that we are not appealing to the settlers as model migrants, and that's the other point of departure in terms mm. of sovereign black scholars. What we offer in this conversation is we've long know they've never accepted us and we haven't wanted acceptance on their terms. So we offer an imagining of this place that's not predicated upon white validation or the patronage of white feminists. And in that freedom, we offer something far more emancipatory than any model migrant can. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point about the difference in the model minority myth. Um, I'm not saying that all are, but, you know, yeah, no, we come up against that a lot. Absolutely. Um I guess we'll have to wrap it up soon. Um, but on a final note, how do you think that we could encourage people to think outside of these structures that we know and are not freeing at all in any way um, and we operate in and have been operating in for years and they're lacking in so many ways? How do we get people to think outside of what we know? That's a, that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> um, Part of me is like, I don't know and I don't care because they're doing it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and what people don't realise is that black fellows are already having to deal with living in this world yeah. um, without engaging the state. Um, we do it all the time. Um, and so it's not like we're waiting for, for, for settlers to come on side before we live like that. Yeah. Um, and because sovereignty just is, it's not something that's awarded. And so for me, I learned a long time ago that I was no longer going to invest my labour in trying to bring people along before I live my life. Um, and that's why um, my labour is exhausted in a very deliberate way um, because I can't, uh, you know, uh, and then for, during this coercive control conversation, I have in, invested some labour in, in these debates. Um, but imagine, imagine if all my work was uh, revolved around dealing with carceral feminists and appealing to a moral centre they just don't have. Imagine what a waste of my scholarship would be. Um, my interest in is, is in talking to black fellows uh, with our own communities about what we do about the world that we have to live in. Um, and that's exciting work to be a part of. And 
that's freeing in itself. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really um, awesome point to finish on. Finish on. I'm sorry, Chelsea, but we've actually run out of time. No, um, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, such an important conversation, and um, I highly recommend uh, people to follow Chelsea Wadigo on Twitter. Uh, her Twitter handle is Dr. C. Wadigo. And if you are interested in reading the incredible article that Chelsea co wrote for the conversation, it's titled Carceral Feminism and Coercive Control When Indigenous Women Aren't Seen as Ideal Victims, Witnesses, or Women. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. If you've just joined us, we just had Dr. Chelsea Wadigo uh, speaking to us about an array of things. Incredible um, conversation. Yes, um, some some really important um, and incredible conversations around um, incarceration, um, mm-hmm. Indigenous sovereignty, uh, carceral feminism. Yeah. Um, I think just, um, I mean, if if anything was should be emphasised within that conversation, it is to listen Mm. to First Nations people, to listen to their experiences and to to listen to the discussion that they should be leading um, in these circumstances. So, yeah, just an incredible um, conversation. Mm. I think what I found really um, pertinent was, you know, people are always asking uh, for First Nations people to bring evidence and mm. when they do it's it's still dismissed or yeah. not considered so i think that's something to to um realize as well it's not it's yes of course it's lived experience um but like um chelsea was saying it's their research it's their scholarship mm. um so yeah what an incredible <laughs> conversation yeah. if you missed it or if you'd like to listen again um this we will be um, podcasting this episode so um, yeah feel free to revisit that important discussion um, I think up next we might need a bit of a breather um, so uh, I'm going to play uh, this song that I only discovered yesterday shamefully um, so I feel like I'm a little late to the party um, but uh, it is a song called Please You by Becca Hatch featuring Planet Vegeta. So Becca Hatch is a Samoan, Kamilaroi and Wiradjuri woman from Western Sydney. She won Triple J's Unearthed High Indigenous Initiative in 2017. Um, and this song is called Please You and it was released earlier this year. <laughs> Thank you. 
and, and we were just speaking to um, Dr. Chelsea um, Wadigo about this. I mean, we are living on <laughs> stolen land and operating on stolen land, and so you would think that race and racism in schools would be something that was um, heavily focused on um, in terms of research. Um, so it is surprising that... Um, you know, you were saying that a lot of your research or a, a lot of the research that's out there comes from overseas, such as the US and, and the UK. Um, yeah, do you have any um, sort of ideas as to why this is, why there is research lacking in Australia? Yeah, I think um, that it's such a good, a good point um, in terms of the idea that we draw so much of our research and, and the research, you know, from the US really dominates the space. We tend to sort of to that and that has absolutely contributed a lot to our knowledge but there are really important differences as you were sort of talking about especially in regards to First Nations peoples and their history and the current experiences that they have around racism and colonisation and all of those things that we really need to account for Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it's uh, that separation of not wanting to acknowledge that, the drawing on it from other places is a little bit easier, but we really need to start examining it more closely from an Australian context as well. Definitely, uh, and I think that um, occurs in not just in in terms of education, but other um, aspects as well, like politics and things like that. We tend to focus a lot on what's happening in the in the US and um, and sort of look at that and think, oh, you know, we're not like them, or you know, it's yeah. not as bad here. But in actual fact, it's it's bad, it's worse, it's ongoing. So um, yeah, hopefully in the next. Um, few years we get to see more research um, in Australia. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about children's ability to engage in conversations and discussions about race? You mentioned um, racial literacy before. Yeah, um, this was a really important finding and it really challenged that popular view that children don't see race or they're too young to have these conversations. Um, Children across the study show real uh, great deal of competency when engaging in discussions about race when they were given the space to do so. Mm. So in most of the studies, they discuss their understanding of race and racism, their experiences of racism, witnessing racism. They were able to talk about the history of racism in Australia, and they had a lot of interesting things to say, and they were able to have lots of uh, rich conversations that were often stifled by teachers who either felt, I guess, uncomfortable or perhaps um, that those conversations weren't necessary at that age. And I mm. think one of the important things to remember is that racism and bias don't magically appear in adulthood. It starts in childhood, slowly develops across the lifespan, and it becomes deeply ingrained and resistant to change by adulthood. Um, and so children have the ability to hold biased views and to act in, in prejudiced ways. In fact, a lot of students report that they experience racism the most from their peers. So intervening early is really, really important. And um, school is a really great place to do that because it's a place where we learn positive and negative mm. messages about race. And children enter school at a really crucial time in that development. So clear anti-racist practices in schools ensures that we don't stifle that important part of their development. Definitely. Um, and, you know, what you were saying about, you know, when children are given the space to discuss race, um, they actually fare really well. And it seems like from the paper that I read, it's they act 
they actively engage in those conversations when given the opportunity. Um, one of the themes that emerged from, from the data analysis that was conducted was a lack of teacher confidence and competency mm-hmm. regarding racial issues. Um, and you mentioned this very briefly before that this, um, sometimes leads to, you know, teachers stifling conversation or, or, um, yeah, not, not allowing students to, to discuss at length, to ask questions. Could you talk us through this, um, a little bit more? Absolutely. So, uh, touching on what I sort of mentioned before that had, um, a, you know, great deal of competency. On the other hand, there appeared to be a mismatch between children's abilities and teachers' perceptions of those abilities, which ultimately led to missed opportunities for those discussions. Um, a lack of teacher uh, competence and confidence often leads to an avoidance of discussions around race or racism, and that meant in these studies that teachers um, sort of incorrectly felt that children don't raise or they're too young to have these conversations. And and um, some teachers reported that they'd had little to no pre-service or in-service training, um, but they also expressed a desire for more training, and, and this sort of varied quite a lot across schools. Some, you know, had far more confidence and competence than other schools and teachers. Um, and I guess Oh, um, I'm not sure if Hannah's still there, if we've lost her. Yeah, May. <laughs> That's all right. Um, we might just go to a quick CSA and see if we can get Hannah uh, back on the air. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Hi, this is Isaac, and I'm talking to you from a tree seat 40 metres high in the Arenando Plateau. I'm here with other activists because we want to stop what Big Forest is planning to do. 
which is to destroy 60 new areas in one of the last refuges of unburned forest in East Gippsland. We're calling the state government to protect all unburned areas of East Gippsland. If you want to get involved, contact gecko at gecko.org.au and join the campaign. A 3CR supporter. Hi, so uh, welcome back to 3CR Radio. Um, joining us back again uh, is Hannah. Um, are you there, Hannah? Yes, I am. Hi. <laughs> um, welcome back. I feel like we were getting into the nitty-gritty of talking about, um, you know, the lack of um, training that teachers feel that they receive um, uh when when training to be a teacher um, regarding uh, conversations around uh, racial issues. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add? You were saying that teachers, yeah, felt like they weren't getting enough support um, but, but really wanted to be able to engage in these conversations with students. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was generally what the theme sort of... Um, signified but this also varied across schools and some felt sort of more confident and competent and other students there has been a little bit more research since that review that highlights there might be a growing competence or at least a growing interest in understanding how to support marginalized students which is really positive to see yeah that's great um one of the other themes that came up from the research was um something called white normativity i was wondering if you could explain that a bit more to our listeners yeah, so this is essentially where classrooms are created to centre the experiences of white people and white history and white culture. So whiteness becomes the norm in the classroom and everything else, I guess, becomes the other. Mm. Um, and that's most commonly done by insinuating, or it was in this study anyway, um, that Australianness and what it means to be Australian was inherently tied and synonymous with whiteness which really doesn't reflect what we know about the Australian population and it, it certainly doesn't reflect the reality um, for a lot of students. And it sends a really clear message to kids about who is superior and dominant in our society and whose society views um, as inferior. Definitely. I think what you were saying about whiteness is um, being seen as the norm and even just the default, like everything else that isn't, white or isn't, you know, quote-unquote Australian is the other, um, can have a huge impact on on children as they're growing up, I think. You know, I'm speaking from a personal experience. Yeah. Growing up um, with Vietnamese parents, I think you internalise a lot of that, um, you know, seeing whiteness as the default and seeing, you know, yourself um, as the other and um, I can imagine that would have a huge impact on, on children, especially at such a young age, while, like you said, they're developing a sense of who they are and a sense of the world um, and learning to have uh, conversations about race. Absolutely. That's, just, that's um, absolutely correct. And you know, especially when all, your t all the teachers, all the predominantly your teachers are white, all of the mm. stories they tend to hear about white people and white history and that, it really does. It sends a, a clear message to both marginalised kids and kids from privileged racial backgrounds as well. Definitely. Um, well, we're unfortunately running out of time, but I did want to really quickly touch on yes. the final two themes of your research, which is colour evasiveness and silencing. Um, could you very quickly sum up these two themes uh, for our listeners today? 
Absolutely. So colour evasiveness is just sort of, I guess, some examples of that would be teachers uh, and adults saying things like, I don't see race and I mm-hmm. don't see colour and everyone is equal, which is really nice in theory, but it's just not the reality for a lot of students. And it's this idea of trying to highlight sameness and avoid talking about difference, which also creates a stigma associated with discussing racial issues. It implies that there's something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and that can often lead to things like silencing um, you know, where, to, where teachers just avoid or divert conversations around racial issues or avoid using terms like racism. And children have also been taught to uh, silence their experiences of racism. And they've reported that that doesn't actually help and it also doesn't stop the racism from occurring. It actually just perpetuates it. No, not at all. And you see this, you know, um, as adults, you see this line being used all the time as well, like I don't see colour and and um, mm-hmm. things like that. It, it certainly wouldn't help for children who um, know that, you know, their experience as a non-white person would be different. Um, and then to grow up as an adult, you know, those themes, like you said, are just perpetuated um, in, in conversations uh, later in life. So, um, well, it sounds like such an interesting space to explore and to research. And, and thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, we'd love to have you back on, you know, um, whenever there's any new research or any updates um, and, and chat to you further about that. But thank you so much, Hannah, for, for joining us on 3CR, 3CR Breakfast this morning. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So if you've just... Um, Joined us again, we were finishing off a conversation with um, Hannah Yarrod, who is a psychologist and PhD candidate at Monash University, um, looking at her research around race and racism in Australian schools. Well, (laughs) um, we've come to the end, nearly, of a a huge Mm. show yeah, yeah. Just to recap, um, earlier on in the show, I had a chat to Letitia Anderson um, about her research into critical race theory and kind of uh, talking us through exactly what happened in the Senate in terms of combating um, a change to a national curriculum to incorporate some aspects of critical race theory. And then we also had the absolute pleasure of talking to Dr. Chelsea Wadigo, um in the middle there um, about coercive control and carceral feminism and incarcerations of um, First Nations people in general. I would highly recommend, if you missed it, to go back and listen to that one um, on our podcast. Um, and just then we heard from Hannah Yarrod. Um, also, it's NADOC week, as we've said before. Um, Beyond the Bars is on at 3CR, um, an incredible show uh, broadcasted uh, that uh, looks at, I guess, um, amplifying the voices of Indigenous people that are incarcerated at the moment. Um, it starts today, so it starts from 11... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Start yesterday. <laughs> starts yesterday, sorry. I'm thinking it's Monday. Um, but you can listen today um, at 11 a.m., um, and uh, it will be on throughout the week, so from July 5th to 9th. Uh, yeah, I would highly recommend having a listen. Yeah, and, and for today's show in particular, um, we'll be broadcasting from Barwon Prison. So please tune in and, um, yeah, tune in to Beyond the Bars every other day this week.
Up next, we've got um, Accent of Women, and uh, so please tune into that, and also to uh, Breakfast every other day this week, um, Wednesday Breakfast on tomorrow at 7 a.m.